Good morning, everybody. Uh, the first case for this morning is State versus Swindell, and we will hear from the appellant. Your Honor, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. I don't know that I'll need it, but just in case. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court. My name is Mark Sneed. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice. I'm here on behalf of the state. It's the state's contention in the instant case that the Court of Appeals erred and it's finding the trial court erred in denying defendant's request for a jury instruction on justification as a defense to the charge of possession of a firearm by a felon. Defendant has failed to prevent, present any evidence he has met any of the standards enunciated by the Delvo or Mercer cases. The Delvo court and Mercer also limited um, the application of justification defense to narrow and extraordinary circumstances. The four factors enunciated by Mercer include four, there are four. Um, first, the defendant was under unlawful and present imminent and pending threat of death or serious bodily injury. Second, the defendant did not negligently or recklessly place himself in a situation where he would be forced to engage in criminal conduct. Third, defendant had no reasonable legal alternative to violating the law. And fourth, there was direct and causal relationship between the criminal action and the avoidance of the threatened harm. I want to focus on the second factor first. Um, the second factor being that the defendant negligently and recklessly placed himself in a situation where he would be forced to engage in criminal conduct. And looking at this case, we see that on May 17th of 2017, defendant was at his home when he received a call from his brother. His brother said that he wanted him to pick, he wanted um, him to pick him up um, because his brother was concerned that he might be involved in altercation as a result of some money he owed to some people. Defendant and his friend brought us justice. They left defendant's home and they traveled to Oakdale Homes, which is where his, defend, where, where his brother lived. When they, met, when they got to Oakdale Homes, they saw that James Ratliff, Anthony Smith, Bobby Lee Ratliff, and Sequel Stevens were beating on his brother. Um, they fought for about three minutes or so. Um, defendant got out of his car. Sequel Stevens approached him and started to throw a punch. Defendant and James Ratliff broke up the fight after three minutes or so. Um, at the conclusion of the fight, Anthony Smith, the victim's brother, looked at the defendant and said, this is NFL territory, you don't belong here. Um, if you look at the evidence in the record, you'll see that the NFL is a gang. Um, and basically, defendant is being put, on, being put on notice that he's not to come back here or else he's going to find trouble. Three minutes after the fight, they left. They went back to the defendant's house. Um, about 15 minutes after they returned from to defendant's house, they received a phone call from Daryl Swindell's um, wife. His wife said that basically the people that they had just fought with were still in the area, in the neighborhood. She did not feel it was safe and that she wanted them to return. So at that point, 15 minutes after the first fight, they returned back to Oakdale Homes. Um, and at that point, defendant basically stands outside in the open um, for the second time that day. Um, stood out there for about 25 to 30 minutes and he was just talking with the residents of the neighborhood about grilling and also people were still discussing the first fight that happened very recently, 15 to 20 minutes ago. And 
The defendant noticed eventually, after standing there for an extended period of time, that Lonnie Smith, the victim's brother, was approaching him, and he also had Anthony Smith, um, Sequel Stevens, and Bobby Lee Ratliff, the same people who were present at the first fight 15 minutes earlier. Um, Lonnie Smith asked the defendant if he had been fighting with his brother. The defendant denied it. Lonnie Smith threw several punches at defendant's head, and as defendant and Lonnie Smith continued to fight, a crowd gathered. Um, and so there's the second fight. Um, only 15 minutes after the first fight, I'll say this is where I'm saying that he recklessly put himself into a negligent er, position. Well, but Mr. Mr. Snead, if, if, if I understand your argument, you tend to emphasize the decision to return to the site of to the to the location where the altercation occurred. Ms. Rawls, if I'm understanding her brief, tends to focus on more the immediate circumstances at the time that the victim and the other folks with the victim walked up to the place where the cookout was occurring. Why is your temporal analysis better than hers in your opinion? Well, Your Honor, I think that I don't believe that you look at these instances in isolation. I believe everything has context. And so when Ms. Rawls argues that we should look at the second fight, so to speak, there is no second fight unless you have the first fight. So once defendant is at his house and his brother calls him and he says, look, I might be in trouble because some people want some money from me and they might want to beat me up because of something they may or may not have done. Um, so he goes there to protect his brother. Um, he breaks up a fight that his brother is involved in and he's actually given a warning by a gang. Um, and I think if you look through the record, um, it's common knowledge that this guy's a gang member um, and he's dangerous. The man tells him, do not come back here because this is NFL territory. You don't belong here. So just at that point right there, despite having that warning, he goes back. So if he had heeded the warning and chose a different path at the end of the first fight, he's not putting himself in this position and we don't ever even get, we don't ever get to a second fight. Mr. Sneed, let me um, follow up on that. Um, as I understand the Court of Appeals majority, they basically are focusing on, first of all, the, that you're supposed to take the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant. Correct. And you don't deny that. Um, and that um, the defendant, when he returned, um, said that he wasn't there to, to have a fight with anybody and um, that, you, that if you take that into account in the light most favorable to the defendant, that the jury could have concluded that there was not negligence in, in him being there. Why is that wrong? So, Your Honor, I would say this, um, and you're correct. We look at everything in the light most favorable to the defendant. However, you also have to look at what the reasonable person would do in this, in this particular instance. Um, the person, the defendant but, here. But you have to reasonable in the light most favorable to the defendant? How do you, how do you put those two together? Okay. So reasonable person, light most favorable to the defendant. Um, the defendant said, these are uncontroverted facts. He received the warning from the person who said, don't come back here. Um, the defendant, who I'm not saying is a reasonable person, um, because I believe that a reasonable person would have stayed there. Um, but given the light and the evidence most light and the light most favorable to the defendant, he still should not have gone back there. Um, because he's already put on notice that 
there's going to be trouble if he goes back there. A reasonable person, after he's told by a dangerous gang member um, that you don't belong here, this is NFL territory, after he just fought his brother, does not stand outside of um, his brother's house in the wide open just discussing um, barbecue. Well, well, if you're talking about determination of whether it's reasonable, isn't that usually for the jury? It is, but, Your Honor, in this instance, this, this was a, an issue for the trial court to decide because basically the determination as to whether a jury instruction is going to be issued is going to be kind of a weighing of the evidence by the trial attorney, by the, by, not the trial attorney, right. the trial court. Right, understood, but if the, if the process of weighing the evidence would mean that the jury could determine either that he wasn't the aggressor and didn't intend to start a fight and that that was a reasonable position, or that they step back and take a broader view and say, well, he shouldn't have gone that, there in the first place. That was not reasonable. So they could have gone either way. In that circumstance, when you take it in the light most favorable to the defendant, why doesn't he get that instruction? So they can decide that. So they can just decide whether it was reasonable or not? Correct. Okay. So, and Your Honor, we have four factors here. Right. Um, and I will argue that the defendant was reckless in putting himself into that factor, um, into that position. However, he's got to meet all four. Um, I would argue he hasn't met any of them. Um, we're talking about whether he was recklessly there. Um, we also look at the other four factors. Well, before you leave that one, the fact that you talk about he was reckless in putting himself back in that position, didn't he return primarily because of the fact that his brother's wife called and said that the individuals were still in the area and therefore she wanted them to come back because she wanted the defendant to accompany her husband his brother to come back safely. Why would that have not been potentially reasonable for a jury to consider? I recall that, and this could be my not re remembering the record as well, Your Honor, but I recall she just said that she felt unsafe, um, that she wanted to return. Um, even at that point, there's still another alternative to going back and standing outside. I believe that what he could have done is, if he did elect to return, then he goes back inside the um, apartment, and he's not just waiting outside for Lonnie Smith and the other people to jump him, because there's a li high likelihood that if he's standing there, the people are still talking about the, um, the fight, that they're going to come and they're going to jump him, and he's going to get in the second fight. He had the, al he had the alternative to go inside the apartment and wait there, or he could have called the police, or as the dissent said in the, um, in the um, Court of Appeals case, he could have lent his car to his brother and let him go back or he could have called the police. Is the recklessness that he returned at all, or is the recklessness that after he returned, he decided to mill around socially outside? Well, I think it's both, but I think it's more so that he decided to mill around outside for 25 minutes when he knew that these people that he had just fought would probably be coming after him. Is this court in a position to feel as though the defendant could have loaned his vehicle to his brother to return, um, not knowing what circumstances there may have been involving insurance limitations or anything like that? Or are you just saying that we should just carte blanche have assumed that that was a reasonable alternative to what you call recklessness? It's just an alternative, Your Honor. I believe that if he could have loaned the car to his brother, had his brother go there, then he doesn't get into any kind of a fight. Um, his brother is able to go and check on his wife as she had requested. Um, they could have gone inside the apartment and they could have called the police if anything further had happened. One more follow-up. In your, in your discussion there, you were 
referring to um, the second factor as requiring that the defendant be reckless. Doesn't doesn't Mercer say either negligent or reckless? It does, Your Honor. And That's negligent correct. is a slightly lower bar. It's a far lower bar. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay, so it could be either. Yes, ma'am. Okay. That's correct. Just to be clear, thank you. Mm -hmm. No problem. Um, so I've covered the second factor. Can, can I, I just want to follow up on one more question about this yes, factor. Um, in your contention that, that we should look at um, that, that, that all of this has context and that we should look at the full context, how far back in time do we go? I mean, if, if this conversation in which he was warned that this is NFL territory had happened two or three days before, is that also part of the context that would make it unreasonable? No, Your Honor. Um, I think if it happens two or three days before, we're talking about a completely different um, set of circumstances. If we're talking about two or three days before, then you've got, in essence, a pulling off period. Um, here, we didn't have two or three days before. Basically what happened is he got called to Oakwood Homes and they had this fight. He returns back to his home, defendant, defendant's home, and he's given a call only 15 minutes later. Um, there is no sort of pulling off period. The likelihood of um, the people actually leaving the area, it's very low. So when he returns back to Oakwood Homes, decides to stand outside of his brother's apartment in the open where he's just had a fight, and the residents are still talking about it, that's putting himself in a reckless position, in my opinion. And so does the case law give us any clarity about what the cooling off period should be? It doesn't, Your Honor. Um, it doesn't give any sort of a, um, any sort of guidance that I'm aware of as, to as far as what a cooling off period would be. Um, and it seems as though it's kind of looking at the individual facts and just kind of seeing if they meet the standard enunciated by Mercer. And, and in terms of his decision to go back and whether or not it was negligent or reckless, um, it, it seems, doesn't the dissent essentially have to assume that he knew that there would be a firearm involved in any future confrontation? So I believe that, I don't believe that there, there would have been, he would, not have had, he would not have had to assume that there would have been a firearm. Um, all we've got to assume is that there would have been some sort of criminal behavior involved. And so basically if the criminal behavior we're looking at here, I would argue is that there's a likelihood that there's going to be a fight here. Um, that's going to be an affray. Um, that's going to be some sort of insult. Um, but there would have been some sort of criminal activity, which is, I believe is all we need to show, Your Honor. But, but didn't he just have the experience of stopping a fight that didn't involve firearms? And he did. And so was it unreasonable for him to assume that he could do the same thing again uh, and protect his sister-in-law? He might have been able to do that. However, even if he's going to get into another fight, that's an affray. An affray is a crime, and that's going to be criminal behavior. And so that still would have put him in a reckless um, situation. He would have been reckless in going back there because he still would have been committing some sort of a crime. I know you're anxious to get to that next element, but... I'll stay with this as long as you like this okay, morning. Well, thank you. And perhaps it's a lead you to the next element because it's about the firearm and perhaps you're going to the third element about no reasonable uh, legal alternative. But once the, the gun gets introduced, uh, at what point does the immediacy of the situation take over in terms of the fact that uh, as the jury uh, was, was inclined to believe uh, at trial that there was no time for the defendant to extricate himself from the situation once the gun was introduced and somebody 
had uh, said the words, I think it was uh, the uh, victim's brother, to, to quote, pop him, unquote, which was uh, discerned to mean uh, that the victim was to shoot the defendant with the gun that was available. Where does immediacy take over and even override what you say is reckless or negligent return by the defendant? Okay. So, uh, so when you talk about like the immediacy requirement, are you, are you dealing with the element that um, talks about he'd have no legal alternative? Yes. Okay. So, in regard to the evidence that was presented, we have conflicting evidence. Um, the state's evidence differs from defendant, but we're limited to the evidence as presented by the defendant. Um, I would say, under defendant's version of the evidence, if he felt like he was going to be popped, so to speak, then I believe that you would have the requisite immediacy. However, if you look at the testimony of the medical examiner, um, the medical examiner testified that the defendant was shot twice. Um, the first bullet went in through the defendant's back, it ripped apart half of his liver, and it exited through the sternum. So the objective evidence as presented by the medical examiner shows us that the defendant was most likely shot in the back. If the defendant was most likely shot in the back, it looks like, or it appears as though, the defendant would have been in a position of retreating. And I would argue that... Well, but but, but if, if the evidence is conflicting, as Justice Hudson indicated earlier, you have to take it in the light most favorable to the defendant, regardless of whether it might conflict with some other piece of evidence, don't you? That's correct, Justice Erwin. So what, if, if the defendant testifies as you've described and we've got the physical evidence that you've described, how does that play into the analysis that we have to um, undertake to resolve this case? So I believe that when you're weighing all of the evidence, you have to weigh it together. So you take the defendant's testimony. Do you, do you weigh evidence in deciding whether uh, an instruction should be submitted or not? The trial court would, Your Honor. Um, what we look, what, I'm sorry. I mean, didn't, isn't the question whether there's any evidence that would support the instruction rather than how to weigh the evidence? It is, in fact, whether there is any evidence to support the instruction. Um, however, the medical examiner's evidence is not the defendant's evidence, and I believe that he has to take this into account, the trial court. I'm, I'm sorry, would you repeat that? I believe that, I can't remember what I said. Um, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, <coughs> so the, um, the medical examiner's evidence conflicts with the defendant's evidence. However, I believe that you have to weigh all the evidence, the trial court would, in context. So when he takes the evidence, as defendant presents it, um, he's got to weigh credibility the trial court, um, and you've also got to look at what the medical examiner said. Um, so if the defendant's testimony, I believe, is that when they were in the second fight, somebody started punching him in the face. He slipped on some trash or something that was there. He fell on his bottom, and he saw a gun that just appeared. When he heard um, somebody say, pop him, that's the point where he shot defendant. When you listen to the medical examiner's testimony, where she's basically saying that this gun, or this, the fatal wounds came through the back, tore up half of his liver, and exited through the sternum. It's not consistent with the defendant's evidence. Um, defendants well, is it the state's argument that if 
the defendant's account of what happened is inconsistent with the physical evidence that you go with the physical evidence in deciding whether the evidence is sufficient to support an instruction? I think the trial court's responsibility is to weigh all of the evidence of record as they've heard it. Um, because it's can, you, can you cite me a case that says what you're arguing? I cannot, Your Honor. I cannot. Because, I mean, my understanding, and I don't, don't want to beat a horse to death here, but uh, my understanding is that in, in resolving this issue, we have to look at, essentially in this case, what the defendant said and decide whether, if you believe the defendant's account of what happened, it suffices to support uh, a justification instruction under the Delavoe test that we adopted in Mercer. Is that wrong? Are you asking me if we just look at the defendant's evidence and nothing else? Yeah. Because, I mean, or any other evidence that might be favorable to the defendant's position? Yes. I mean, in this case, my understanding is it cons the, the evidence that's favorable to the defendant's uh, position essentially consists of the defendant's testimony. If there's something else, you would include it, too. Correct. That's, that's exactly where I would be, Your Honor. I believe that we have to look at what the defendant's testimony is, what evidence he has presented, but you also have to look at everything else. Um, the medical examiner's testimony says that this person was most, like, most likely shot in the back. The victim was most likely shot in the back. It's not consistent with what the defendant said. It's physically impossible for what the defendant's, the defendant's um, account of the facts to be consistent with what the medical examiner said. That's objective, and there's no really no wiggle room in what the medical examiner has found. The man was shot in the back. So, so is the test, whatever the, the, the defendant's account, modified to reflect whatever position the physical evidence would support? I think if the defendant's account of the facts is consistent with everything else, then I think you take it in light most favorable. And if it, 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 something else is inconsistent with the defendant's account, you go with the something else? <laughs> I think that you look at everything in context, Your Honor. Um, here the defendant said he slipped, a gun magically appears, and he shot the defendant once he heard him say, pop him. Um, he didn't say anything as far as shooting anybody in the back, but that's what the medical examiner said. If the person is basically fleeing, um, which is what the objective evidence says, the evidence that cannot be con controverted, that has not been, I guess, um, challenged in any, any way, then the defendant shot him in the back as he was retreating, which shows that he was not under any sort of imminent threat of um, bodily injury or death. So let me ask a quick follow-up again. I don't want to beat this one to, to too much, but um, as much as you want, Justin. I want to make sure I understood what you said. I heard you say that the trial judge has to weigh the credibility of the evidence in order to decide whether to give the instruction, um, I, and as between the defendant's story and the physical evidence. Yes, Did I hear Honor. that correctly? Yes, Your Honor. Well, isn't when you get into the territory of weighing credibility, isn't that quintessentially the function of the jury? It is, Your Honor. It is, Your Honor. Um, but when you've got such strong objective evidence that the defendant's testimony is not credible. But even if it's strong and, and you're weighing it, that's for the jury typically, isn't it? It is, but there's got to be a preliminary determination by the trial judge as to whether the defendant's evidence as presented is enough to get to the jury. And in this particular instance, I don't believe that the defendant presented enough to get to the jury. And so it's the state's position that even if that involves a credibility determination, i.e. that you don't, that the defendant isn't particularly credible, that that's for the trial court to make? Preliminarily. Preliminarily, Your Honor, I would. And 
Do you have any, any cases on that? I do not, Your Honor. Okay. I do not. Thank you. Okay. Um, also, given, and I know my time is running short because I've got my five minutes of rebuttal, um, but I want to go into basically just the avoidance of um, was there any legal alternative. And going back to the evidence that the medical examiner presented, I just want to point out that if this person was shot in the back and the person was retreating, then he would not have been in any sort of imminent um, danger or threat of bodily injury. The man is retreating, so there's no need to basically shoot him in the back because he had the choice to, to leave at that point or not shoot him um, and keep going about his way. Finally, there was also some evidence on cross-examination where the defendant was asked directly, were you able to just get into your car, which was very close by? Um, the defendant said, yes, I was. Um, and I believe that um, the prosecutor asked, well, you chose not to take that. And he said, no, I did not. So you've got a concession by the defendant in the record that he had a choice to get into his car and leave the scene rather than take this gun um, and kill the victim. I think that's all I've got for now, unless you have any other questions. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the FLE. May it please the court, Mr. Chief Justice and honorable justices, I am Leslie Rawls, representing Harold Swindell. The Court of Appeals correctly concluded that taken in the light most favorable to the defendant, the jury was entitled to have the instruction on justification. We do not disagree about the law. The state and the defense both agree about what Delavo and Mercer say. We do disagree a little bit about the facts. Well, before you do that, though, let's talk about the, the second factor. Mm -hmm. It says, and I'm quoting out of Mercer and then mm -hmm. quoting Delavo, quote, that the defendant did not negligently or recklessly place himself in a situation where he would be forced to engage in criminal conduct, right? Yes, sir. The criminal conduct in this instance is possession of a firearm. Now, if... You know, in Mercer, the defendant drove up and was immediately surrounded by a whole bunch of folks. Uh, in, in this case, the evidence is we had a fight. The defendant left. Uh, the defendant gets the phone call from the defendant's, I guess, sister-in-law that says, need you to come back over here. The guys that were in the fight are still around or something like that. It, that's part of the evidence in light most favorable to the defendant, isn't it? Because that's from the defendant's testimony. Yes, right? that, that's part of the evidence. Well, that mean, yeah. that's, mean, okay. but when you consider, I mean, when we to, to go back to the discussion I had with Mr. Sneed, when we look, the evidence that we're supposed to look at in this case is essentially what the defendant says, testified to, right? All the evidence that's in favor of the defendant, right. including some but, of the autopsy. I mean, but in this particular case, the evidence in favor of the defendant is the defendant's testimony, essentially. In large part, yes. And, among, and, and, and the, the, the 
misstatement or the factual assertion that I made a second ago about the defendant having come back to the apartment area uh, at the request of, I guess, his sister-in-law uh, because the folks that were involved in the earlier fight were still there and that he went back in order to break up any further fights. That's all from the defendant's testimony or the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, isn't it? It is. Okay. So let me get to the, the question that I asked Mr. Sneed earlier. I mean, he's, he and I have a little bit of discussion about what is, and in, in, in Justice Earls asked some questions about this too. What point in time do you make the determination of whether the defendant negligently or recklessly put himself in a position where he'd have to engage in criminal conduct? You can, you can pick any point in time. It doesn't seem like the earlier points in time matter. The most relevant point is the time when the fight started, the second fight. The earlier fight was a fist fight. There is no evidence that there was any sort of weapon involved, any threats with weapons. It was a fist fight. He broke it up. So, so, so is your argument then that the defendant really didn't have an obligation to avoid putting himself in a position where he might be involved in a further fight? I would suggest that the evidence to support, doesn't support that he would be involved in a further fight. He broke the fight up. He broke up the fist fight. When he came back and he was visiting with the other people in the community, uh, the state's witness talked about him being there as a peacemaker. There was, as Mr. Sneed mentioned, a warning not to be there, and, and but it was I'm at his brother. I'm going to say this in a little bit of a weird way, and you can tell me that I've said it in a weird way. But putting, your position, putting yourself in a position where you are at risk of having to engage in some type of physical interaction with someone else, uh, <coughs> putting yourself in a position like that constitute uh, placing yourself in a situation where you would be forced to engage in criminal conduct? Uh, it might on these facts. It didn't necessarily okay. until Lonnie Smith started punching him because everything that led up to that particular event was nothing that would necessarily put him into a position of having to engage in criminal conduct. Breaking up his brother's fist fight giving his brother a ride back, visiting with the community, even knowing people were there, he could be in a position of breaking up a fight if one occurred, but not starting a fight or necessarily engaging in a fight. In fact, if, uh, th and this is one of the factual points that we disagree on, if you look at page 934 of the transcript, the warning that this is NFL territory and don't come around here, was directed at his brother, not at the defendant. That's the testimony. So his brother was warned not to be there, even though he lived there. So and let me let me ask you a follow-up about that. The um, the dissenting judge in the Court of Appeals focused on there being safer alternatives available to the defendant. That he could have stayed in the car. He could have not gone. Um, et cetera. Um, even if that's true, 
would that um, mean that he should not get the instruction? Would that mean that he should not get the instruction? Uh, no, he should have had the instruction. There may have, the, the alternatives that were suggested, and I think uh, the point was made a little while ago that his, his brother, and the dissent made this as well, he could have lent his brother his car. Well, that presumes that his brother had a license, that he trusted his brother with the car, that his brother was capable of driving, what, maybe it was a stick shift, we don't know. And was there any evidence to the effect the, that that was an available option? No, there is nothing about being able to lend his brother the car or being able to lend Broadus Justice the car. There was nothing about that. But even if under what you have emphasized, that the defendant had a right to be where he was, if under Mercer, as the court said in the majority at least, that if one engages in criminal conduct, it has to be under the most narrow and extraordinary circumstances, then how do you justify the defendant voluntarily and somewhat cavalierly engaging socially with the community after having broken up the previous fight and after having taken his brother back pursuant to his own sister-in-law's request to just then be as open as he was with that vulnerability. <clears throat> when he broke up the first fist fight, he was engaged as a peacemaker. One of the things that can happen is when someone who is capable of breaking up fights, think police officer, is present, and he's not a police officer, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but the presence of someone who's capable of breaking up a fight can help to tone down sometimes, the emotions that might lead to a second fist fight. And that's what this started as, was a second fist fight. Wasn't there also some evidence, if my recall is correct, that while he was socializing with the public, uh, after having gone back, state contending that that was done, if not recklessly, at least negligently, that he was even discussing the first fight? There was the, uh, I think it was Shockway Mullins asked him about the first fight, and he said no, he wasn't fighting, that he was too old to fight, he wasn't interested in doing anything like that, he just broke up the fight. And I don't have the transcript page reference, but that's my recollection. So as you see it, if we look at the narrow and extraordinary tailoring of the defendant's return to the area, it's your position that, as the state would have us to look as well, to the totality of the circumstances. The defendant has satisfied all four factors of Mercer as we adopted from Delavaux? Yes, Your Honor, that, that is our position. He's, and I would also point out that the dissent did not, the Court of Appeals dissent did not question his satisfaction of the first and the fourth, and the state's brief to this court did not contest the first and the fourth. The ones that we disagree on are the second and the third factors, whether he recklessly and negligently put himself into a circumstance where he would have to engage in criminal conduct, the second, and the third, whether he had an alternative. And to give my colleagues a chance, and this will be my last one, at least for this phase, uh, from the standpoint of what the state has said about looking at the medical examiner's uh, testimony in its objective state, 
uh, how would you have us to reconcile what the state would have us to focus on with what the defendant's position was about the medical examiner's testimony about the uh, firearm being on the ground and there being an upward trajectory of a bullet which would be consistent with the defendant's testimony that he shot from the ground once he saw the gun in front of him. How, how do we reconcile that he was shot in the back with having an upward trajectory? Yeah, the state has said that uh, the defendant was, the defendant shot uh, the victim in the back, and hence there was uh, evidence that was inconsistent with the defendant's account that he was uh, being threatened at the time that he shot. However, there is some evidence as well from the defendant that he failed, that he saw the gun in front of him, and the medical examiner has uh, had testified that the shot came from a trajectory that would have been supportive of the defendant's position that the defendant was on the ground and shot after the phrase, quote, pop him, unquote, was stated. How should we look at that in terms of all of that evidence in terms of again, what the trial court determined to do. The fact that all of that evidence is there suggests that the jury gets to make a decision. The upward trajectory supports the defendant's position. A fist fight, an altercation that's going on, is unlikely to leave people in a single position face-to-face -face at all times. They're likely moving as they fight, it's possible that Mr. Smith saw Mr. Swindell pick up the gun and began to turn, and that's the reason the uh, shot was fired from behind. But that's a jury question. I, I want to um, ask you a question about the second element, the, that the defendant did not negligently or recklessly place himself in a situation where he'd be forced to engage in criminal conduct. In that formulation, the criminal conduct, is that the conduct of possessing a firearm or is that any possible criminal conduct? Your Honor, I don't think that answer is clear <coughs> in the cases that we've got. So if the criminal, I, it, in, it should be a little bit narrower in order to provide clarity for the lower courts. What is this criminal conduct that's being talked about? If he puts himself, if he had, if he had gone back and engaged in a purchase of a marijuana cigarette. Well, he just engaged in criminal conduct and he was back at that situation. And then, you know, if that was one of the things that happened with the people who were um, uh, preparing for the barbecue. But, but here we're analyzing whether or not he has, he's entitled to a jury instruction on the defense of justification. And so, it, and, and, the, and the here, the justification is not for the shooting, but for the possession of the firearm by a felon. So why would it, why would it make sense to, to say that he, in order to be entitled to a defensive justification to the charge of a, um, possessing a firearm, he would have to show that he didn't recklessly put himself in danger of, of um, being forced to engage in any criminal conduct? I don't think that makes sense. That's why I think the court needs to narrow that to provide clarity to the lower courts. And if it, and it, 
it would make sense to say criminal conduct that led to the need for the possession or something along those, those lines and not just any criminal conduct, which I believe is what the case law says right now. Would it, would it make sense to interpret the way that the second prong is stated in Delavo as adopted in Mercer, that you negligently or recklessly place your yourself in a position where you have to engage in the criminal conduct for which you were prosecuted and therefore uh, against which you seek to assert a justification defense? Or is that, I, did I say that so badly that you couldn't follow it? I, I did follow it, thank you. <laughs> At least I believe I did. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much clarity it would provide phrased that way and that there may be, um, that may be a broader ruling than is necessary in this case. But I do think some clarity on the, the meaning of criminal conduct within the second element would be useful to the lower but at least as you understand the case law to this point is the criminal conduct in question the charge that's at issue before the court in the trial where the instruction sought that seems the logical interpretation i don't think it's been expressly said that way and i think that's one reason why my colleague mentioned that he would have at least been in an affray which uh, in an affray, which would have been criminal conduct because there's not a lot of clarity around that. With regard to that potential affray though, he was just talking to Mr. Smith when he started getting punched. Well, would it, it wouldn't make sense, would it, to say that justification could be a defense to something that's not charged, would it? You wouldn't want to. Uh, you wouldn't be asking for an instruction for justification as a defense to something other than what you're charged with, would you, as a defendant? I don't think so. So I, the, the the I guess what I'm trying to figure out is the, what the what the relevance is of there being a reference to an affray as a possibility. Uh, I I didn't say that. <laughs> so my colleague said that. So that might be a good question for him on rebuttal. Um, but the, the affray did occur, and it was unprovoked. They were talking briefly, obviously very briefly, from all the witnesses, including the defendant. Uh, and then Mr. Smith began punching him. Well, what does, does the test require that the defendant have provoked the conduct, or does the test require that the defendant be in a position where the conduct became necessary? The conduct being the possession. In this case, the possession of the firearm. Uh, he, under the second element, it would have to be that he put himself in the position negligently or recklessly um, that the possession became necessary. So is, is the extent to which the defendant provoked the fight, the, the second fight in which the shooting occurred, is that determinative of whether the instruction was or was not permissibly uh, refused? I don't think it's determinative because you need to look at the entire context and all the evidence in, in the light most favorable, favorable to the defendant, but it could play into the question of whether or not he negligently or recklessly put himself in a position where the possession became necessary. 
there's conflicting evidence as to whether or not the defendant brought a gun to the circumstance that occurred upon his second visit or whether or not a gun was introduced by someone else. How does that figure into our analysis as to whether or not the defendant should have had the instruction given on justification? When there's conflicting evidence, it's for the jury to resolve. So the jury was entitled to have the instruction and allow them to make that decision. It's not for the trial court to make that finding a fact. Taking the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, taking the defendant's version to be true, that the gun was introduced and he first found out about it when he was on the ground and saw it, what somebody in the crowd said, pop him, unquote. Would it be the defendant's position that at that point, regardless of the other factors outside of the third factor, that in terms of any reasonable legal alternative, that he had a right at that point under the immediacy of the situation to possess a firearm, even though he was not to possess a firearm because he was a convicted felon? Yes. Under those facts, and there is one bit of that fact that I'm not entirely in agreement with, but it's more than a generalized fear. It's a real emergency. And those are the things that have been used to measure whether or not the instruction should be given. The fact that I am not entirely in agreement on is the question of when someone said pop him. And I recognize that there's a fight going on and trying to keep things in some sort of chronological order under those circumstances may be quite difficult. My reading of the transcript is that they were surrounded, that the small guy who was with Mr. Smith was backing up much larger people, and that made Mr. Swindell believe that he had a gun, that Mr. Swindell's brother said, he's got a gun, he got a gun, is the way it's in the transcript. And then all of this may be not exactly chronological, but people in the crowd were yelling at Mr. Smith, pop him, which means kill him, kill Mr. Swindell. And then as they tussled and Mr. Swindell fell to the ground, as supported by the autopsy report, the gun was between the two men and Mr. Swindell got it first. And that's, the evidence supports that version of events, which means it was up to the jury to decide. So the immediacy of the circumstance, in your view, is what would compel the defendant to be able to, despite being a felon, to be able to grab the gun and act in defense of himself? Yes, Your Honor. It was a real emergency under all of those circumstances, not just one, but all of those circumstances. Was that sufficient in and of itself to satisfy the third prong of Mercer, then that there was no reasonable legal alternative to act in the other way because of the immediacy of the circumstance? Yes. An alternative suggests a choice. And at that point, all of the circumstances suggest that his choice was let 
Mr. Smith grab the gun and probably shoot him or grab the gun himself. So there was no reasonable alternative <coughs> to possessing the firearm at that point. Well, if it, at that point, um, if the victim potentially could have grabbed the gun and the defendant actually grabbed the gun, why did he have to shoot him? There was um, a lot going on. And I think at that point, I think that's, that's the question for the jury in the, in the murder charge where they returned second degree murder. And their second degree murder was based on the illegality of the, of the shooting. And the illegality of the shooting rested on the possession of the firearm by felon, or could have, it's, it's not clear. The, the jury instruction for that was simply illegally killed the other person. I mean, the, the, the murder conviction, at least as I understood, it was a standard second degree murder killing with malice. It, well, the jury, right? the jury instructed included that it was illegally. And well, but it was, I mean, the, the, the defendant was not convicted of second-degree murder based on any sort of instruction that took the unlawful possession of the firearm into account, was it? With the use of the term illegality and one of the charges being the Ill illegal possession of the firearm, Yes, the jury could have. Typically, a jury is instructed that you're guilty of second-degree murder in the event that the defendant, uh, acting with malice, uh, killed another person. And typically, the instruction—I don't have it in front of me, and I haven't looked at it in a while—but typically, the instruction is that uh, if a defendant is found to have intentionally shot another or wounded another person with a deadly weapon, that by itself can suffice, it doesn't require it, but it can suffice uh, to support the necessary finding of malice. And that's, that, that was the instruction that was given here, wasn't it? The, the instruction that was given here included illegally, illegally, was Illegal. the term is in there. And I did not write down, down that sure. page number. Well, I, I didn't either, so don't feel bad. <laughs> it's in the transcript. Was there any testimony that, were you done? Was there any testimony about any other guns being seen at the scene? There was the impression that the, the smaller man um, who was backing up larger people had a gun, and there was the defendant's brother yelling, he got a gun. But is there any evidence from anybody that anybody actually saw uh, a gun other than the one that was on the ground, allegedly on the ground? Not that I recall. And the, the, ju the jury was instructed that it could find the defendant not guilty in the murder case on the basis of self-defense, wasn't it? Yes, Your Honor. And obviously, by convicting the defendant, rejected that uh, part of the defendant's case. They did choose second-degree murder. Right. And so, I mean, this is not something that either one of you has argued, and I ask it with some trepidation, but if the defendant's self-defense contention is rejected by the jury, and the self-defense contention had to have rested on the idea that I picked up the gun and fired 
at the victim because I was in danger of my life, if that's rejected, then what, why is it reasonably possible that an instruction on justification would have resulted in a new, would have resulted in an acquittal with respect to the firearm possession conviction when the defendant is found guilty of second-degree murder, thereby rejected in the face of a self-defense defense? The possession of the firearm is the mere possession, as you know. It doesn't have to do with what you do with the gun once you possess it. Mm -hmm. So the self-defense argument is not necessarily related to the actual possession, the physical possession of the firearm. In the light, in the light most favorable to the defendant, the way he became possessed of the firearm was that he felt like he had to use it in self-defense, right? Yes. If, if there's no weapons other than the one that was possessed by the defendant, how would a ruling in the defendant's favor uh, recognize narrow and extraordinary circumstances that are necessary for a justification defense? I mean, if, if we don't require that there be guns there, and, and I'll give an example. In, in Mercer, uh, there was no question that uh, Mr. Mercer lived um, at that location, that he was surrounded by a large group of people uh, with a circumstance uh, that he uh, had no way of previously or prior knowledge when he got out of his vehicle, and that uh, there was this imminent threat, whereas here, other than the gun on the ground, allegedly on the ground, uh, why, why do, does this circumstance uh, create a near and extraordinary circumstance? If we remove all the other evidence of the guns, the he's got a gun, the little guy backing up the bigger guy, and that's the only gun in the picture, He's still involved in a fight with a man who's being told to shoot him. And the gun appears between the two of them. And, it, and the, um, Mr. Smith had a reputation for violence. Now, there's nothing about whether it was weapons violence. But the gun between the two of them, him being told to shoot him, grabbing the gun was a way to stop that. Possessing the gun was a way to stop that. Is the effect of your argument in this case going to be that if a defendant uh, is entitled to use deadly force in self-defense, that that defendant is automatically going to be able to possess a firearm even though he or she has been previously convicted of a felony? I don't think you're required to make that broader rule. Okay. Why not? And I realize I'm taking your time off. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I think it's your time. But... Um because the possession itself is a separate offense, and so he's, he, a defendant has to make a choice to possess the gun before he gets to the point of using the gun. And so possessing the gun is separate still, even in the example you gave. Thank you, counsel. Thank you.
Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Justice Hurls, Justice Hudson, I think I want to briefly address your um, concern over the nature of the crime um, in regard to a possession defense, um, I'm sorry, justification defense. So I want to first point out that justification is only a defense for the charge of possession of a firearm by a felon. Um, if you look at the fourth factor of the test, there's got to be a causal connection between the, um, the behavior and the, um, the threatened harm, so to speak. And so in this sense, and I think Justice Earl is what you're getting at as far as the crime goes, um, you've got to have a relationship between his firing this gun and his wanting to defend himself, so to speak. Um, and I think that you're not going to have a justification defense if you have somebody who's, say, an accountant, um, who's a convicted felon and has a firearm in his office. You're not going to get a um, justification defense under those circumstances. However, here we have somebody who has put himself in harm's way. Um, he gets into a fight, which leads to his need to use a firearm. Um, there, I think you have the distinction. So I believe that if you see any sort of relationship between somebody placing himself in a position where he needs to use a firearm, um, that I believe the justification defense um, that is the purpose of it. Well, let me ask a quick follow-up. Yes, ma'am. Um, on uh, the flip side, it does not require, the, our cases don't require that the defendant have acted in self-defense in order to get the instruction on justification, though, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. Okay, just wanted to be clear about that. Sure. Um, that's all I wanted to clear up. I'm happy to answer anything else you guys might want to know from me. Thank you, counsel. Thank, Thank you, you, Your Honor. Both counsel.